Hello and welcome to Socialism, the weekly Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. The 2010s were a period of major attacks on workers in Britain, but the bosses and their politicians didn't get things all their own way. The trade unions, the basic self-defence organisations of the working class, fought many important battles, shutting down production to try and force the bosses back. There were many setbacks in those fights, but there were also victories. Marxists tried to learn from both. With a new decade opening up alongside a change of era in politics and world relations for Britain, what are the lessons of the 2010s for the trade union struggle in the 2020s? This episode of Socialism looks at the trade unions. New decade, new challenge. Right. I'm here today with Rob Williams, who is the Socialist Party's industrial organiser. Hello, Rob. Hello. A new Tory government has just taken office with a majority. Now, 10 years ago, we had a new Tory government then as well. Of course, it was including the Liberal Democrats, but that did precisely nothing to change the character of its policies. And at that time, the trade unions carried out some struggle against the new onslaught of austerity the attacks on the working class to try to make ordinary people pay for the financial crisis which erupted 2007-2008 and I think it's probably fair to say most people would look at it as not having succeeded overall. The unions failed to stop austerity 10 years ago. Here we are again in what looks like quite a similar position. Does this mean, Rob, that the trade unions are not equipped to combat austerity and combat the Tories now? Well, that's a good question, actually. And of course, there will be people, particularly after the shock of Johnson getting a sizable majority, will draw those pessimistic and cynical conclusions, really. Mm. And it is easy to look back at the last decade in a very superficial manner, be wise after the event, and say, well, the unions weren't capable of fighting then. Will they be capable of fighting now? And of course, many of those who will draw those conclusions are the trade union leaders themselves who will (laughs) want to gloss over the role that they played. Mm. Actually, the last decade really was a period of struggle. You know, we had the biggest austerity offensive for a century. We had the aftermath of the credit crunch and the the Great Recession Mm. of a few years before. And of course, the two things are related. And... Really, the unions did engage and workers did engage in struggle. And, of course, the first part of that decade was a real, you know, big battle over the austerity, which really was reflected in the main instance over the attack on public sector pensions. And in 2011, coming on the back of the student movement of the autumn of 2010, we did have a mass struggle. We had the biggest demonstration a union-led demonstration for, well, in living memory. I mean, if you think about it, probably three times as big as the Industrial Relations demonstration in 1971, which again... The Industrial Relations demonstration? Yeah, the the demonstration the unions organised against Heath's anti-union laws. This was the Tory Prime Minister Ted Heath. Exactly. Three times as big as that, and that was a massive demonstration. And then that led then to the, the strike in November 2011, against the attack on pensions, coordinated day of action, which in reality was a public sector general strike, Mm. 
almost was two million workers were out on that strike. Exactly. Monday, which actually in absolute numbers was more workers than were on strike in 1926 in a general strike. It wasn't a general strike, but it was still an enormous day of yeah. strike action. And, and for the people who were involved on that day, what they'll remember is, and sometimes you have to remind yourself, I think, was that it wasn't a passive day. It wasn't a day where everyone, you know, people just didn't turn up to work. It was a day where many towns and cities, you had mass demonstrations, you know. So I remember being in London, 60,000 workers on a demonstration, you mm. know, a midweek demonstration. But, you know, you had 20,000 in this city, 20,000, 30,000 in another city. You had, I remember the figure, I think it was 4,000 people in Taunton, for instance. So this was a massive demonstration which if it was built on if it had been continued and escalated could have defeated the Tories there's no question about that so that's an important question because I remember I was on that 60,000 strong demonstration alongside you Rob and I remember walking up from where I lived in South London to the central London demonstration and everywhere you went there was a picket line you ran out of socialist party material to give to people because there were workplaces we didn't even know existed that were on strike on the way to this demonstration you're walking up it was enormous, so why didn't it succeed? Well, I think a big part of it was was that the trade union leaders were either unable or unwilling to face up to the fact that we had entered a new period, if you like. And what I mean by that is is that, you know, in the decade before we'd had strikes, actually, and the new Labour, you mm. know, on pay, on pensions as well. The firefighters. Yeah, but certainly the action by public sector unions against pension attacks. But the recession of 2008 onwards Mm. and the austerity, this was a full frontal assault by the capitalist establishment, by their government, on really the gains of the post-war period by the working class. You know, that if you look at the rollout of austerity in Britain, what that has meant, you know, anything from 800,000 to a million public sector jobs. But... Workers losing something like ten to fifteen percent of their income. Mm. You know, we've all seen the huge cuts in local government provision and all the rest of it. The extension of academies and mm. free schools and all. This was a massive, massive attack. And therefore, to face up to that, you needed a full frontal assault. Mm-hmm. And for those trade union leaders, frankly, who you know now talk about all the the onslaught that's been against us in that period, then there has been the opportunity, you know, and we need to defend what happened in 2011 because... Well, the strike. Exactly. (laughs) Sorry, yeah. But we we need to talk about that because there was an opportunity there. Mm. And the point I make, I suppose, is that some of the trade union leaders, like the TUC leadership, Dave Prentice and Unison, will argue, Mm. well, we managed to win some significant concessions off the government (laughs) at that time. And of course, if you looked at a dispute in isolation, then of course, there have been many disputes where the employer tries to do something, you take action, you manage to win or prevent everything the employer wanted to do, etc. And of course, at certain times, given the balance of forces, that can be seen as a, sometimes as even a victory. Mm. But in this instance, it was a defeat. Why? Mm. Because the Tories were emboldened by that. The balance of forces weren't in the Tories' favour. No. Don't forget, this was a Tory-led coalition with the Lib Dems, as you described. This was a weak government, potentially, and there was an opportunity to really put that forward. And there were other opportunities. A couple of years later, there was a growing mood against 
the government's pay freeze, mm. etc. And of course the Tories saw an opportunity in both disputes to try and split and divide, you know, by giving a little bit of pay increase to certain sector workers and not others, etc. But nevertheless, we need to make that point that actually the period of the 2010s, if you like, wasn't this passive period where mm. workers weren't prepared to take action. Yes, there are historically low levels of strike action, particularly compared to the period of the 70s and 80s. But actually, it has been a period of conflict, of struggle. And actually, at the start of the decade, there was an opportunity to have a full frontal collision with the Tories. It did happen in part. There was an opportunity to take it to an A-level and inflict a defeat. And some of those trade union leaders are responsible for that. So, in effect, it was particularly the right-wing elements of that joint strike, it was, it was it's something like 30 unions in the public sector, in the leadership of those unions, which sold that struggle out. The momentum was with the workers, the advantage was with the workers, and despite that, despite an enormously successful day of strike action, which could have been used as a step towards a 24-hour public sector general strike, which could have been used as a step towards escalating that action to more days and potentially even looking at starting to bring in the private sector as well, all of that potential could have been there. They said, oh, that's enough, and they went in and signed what was called the Heads of Agreement, which led to the whole thing disintegrating. So that strike wasn't defeated, it was sold out, and you had, for example, Brandon Barber, the General Secretary of the TUC at the time, was rewarded with his knighthood and his position on the Board of Governors of the Bank of England, etc. So what is the lesson from that? Well, the lesson is, isn't it, is that those people, they're always correct in hindsight, if you like. (laughs) So what they will do is is look at something that they're at least partially, if not only, responsible for and say, ah, well, we weren't strong enough. Actually, experience tells us, and this was true in 2011, that actually workers, when they engage in struggle, and of course this is multiplied when it's a coordinated mass strike, which is what we saw in, in November 2011, workers have their confidence but their consciousness raised in a battle. And therefore that day will inevitably have raised the consciousness of workers in that struggle and set the scene for more. To have gone to those workers after that day of strike action and say, do you know what, in the new year we are going to go for two days. Look look at the situation in France right now. Mm. If you want a slide indoors moment, if you like, (laughs) what could have happened is that exactly that. In France, the movement developed, it went on because workers in that struggle inevitably you know, as they say, the confidence and the consciousness is raised. Although, of course, there are important limitations to the strike movement in France, including a lack of strategy from the leadership there as well. Yes, absolutely. I suppose the lesson for us is that there were attempts made in 2011-12 to continue that, to try and act as a lever on the trade unions, both in the building of that strike and to try and continue it. So, for instance... Some of the left unions at the time tried to do that. The National Shop Stewards Network certainly played that role. So the National Shop Stewards Network is a coordinating body for rank-and-file trade unionists established by the RMT, which you happen to chair, Rob. Yeah, and also in early 2012, PCS Left Unity organised a conference open to everyone on the left in the unions. Again, an attempt to try and continue that. And it's interesting, that conference did lead directly to, if you like, what became the last strike in the pensions dispute, which Mm -hmm. was in May 
2012. But again, just a reflection of the mood in society at that time, which again, some of these union leaders will try and conveniently gloss over. But in May 2012, there were a number of unions still took strike action. PCS, for instance, Unite in Health and other unions. So PCS is the trade union in the national public sector, the civil servants and so on. And Unite is a general union, mainly in the private sector, but one of the largest unions in Britain. Yes. Also, the RMT's got members in the Royal Fleet Auxiliary who took action. It was also a day where the POA, members of the POA, walked out. So that's the Prison Prison Officers Association, who have been denied their right to strike. But the same day, 30,000 police marched through the central London Mm. against Theresa May, the Home Secretary, the Tory Home Secretary. Mm. And I can remember the day where workers who were on strike and the police who were on protesting, you could just see them coming together on that day. And what it showed was that was the real mood. Mm. That was the real mood that existed. You imagine if in the early part of 2012 that strike had been continued. But I suppose the lesson is, of course, is that we have to organise across the unions, within each union. We have to build fighting, rank-and-file, left organisations, which we are part of. Mm-hmm. We recognise that, but that there's no substitute for that. That can sometimes be a... Seems like a thankless task. You wonder mm. if you're getting anywhere. But actually, that day-to-day work over a period, building up those positions, is very, very important. And we have to continue to do that. And, of course, part of that is discussing what happened at the time. Mm. That we don't fall into this fatalistic mood. Actually, workers showed... The events, I think, of 2011-12 showed a couple of things. They showed the trade unions are still the main fighting force in society, that if they're mobilised with a fighting leadership, they can really shake society and can have a huge, in fact, a decisive effect. And workers will fight. And that has to be something that we come back to for the battle ahead, if you like, under the Johnson government and beyond. So this question then of leadership at every level, really, of building what are called broad lefts in the trade unions, organisations, like you say, of the rank and file, of ordinary trade union members, of shop stewards, their elected workplace representatives, which can stiffen up the leadership and actually argue within the union and push the leadership for the sort of tactics which are necessary to really win for members and, if necessary, replace that leadership as well. Exactly. You have to have that view that really what we're trying to do is transform the unions into fighting organisations. I'll give an example is look what's happened in UCU. UCU, So that's the university and college union. Yeah, UCU has been a union really fighting against massive attacks in the education sector, particularly in further and higher education, fighting casualisation, marketisation. It's had to really take some on the chin over previous attacks on their pensions. And yet, in early 2018, Mm. the government came again for pensions in the higher education, And that was a strike that really exploded into action. And you look at it and you think, well, why did that happen? Because previously the union had fought and actually had had to accept some setbacks in the recent past, actually. Mm. But I think the difference was, was that the heart of that strike was many younger academic staff who probably weren't even in the pension scheme, Mm -hmm. but had come into higher education, had studied hard for years, and then, lo and behold, had realised that actually their future is a disaster. Many of them 
struggling to get proper full-time jobs, actually low pay but casualised employment and all the rest of it. So they were just looking for a way to fight? Oh, it was, it was incredible what happened. And of course, what's interesting was, was that the leadership at the time, who were looking, at, at, were looking to accept a deal of the government, of course, there is a parallel between the pension strike of 2011, and it just shows what can be seen as an acceptable deal in one period. Certainly in that period, those workers have been energised, and they are workers, the UCU members, they'd been energised in that dispute. It really did feel to them as if there was an absolutely crucial struggle, and they actually were prepared to fight the leadership. I mean, I remember being up at the UCU's headquarters where members surrounded the headquarters to stop the leadership settling the dispute and that has resulted as well it's opened the opportunity to transform the leadership that's yeah you've in got the a balance new general secretary there's a new general secretary hopefully that will be a big step towards transforming the union nothing's automatic by the way that's a living struggle and of course we now have more action being announced by the ucu in the pension dispute but also the dispute about all the issues that the members face that's coming in the next few weeks, you know, in a new phase of that struggle. So let's come back to that in a second. But this is a section of the workforce which traditionally is very middle class. And you could also say the same, for example, of the medical profession. And yet we had not only a strike of university lecturers, many of whom these days are actually on zero-hour contracts and in absolutely disgraceful conditions, but you had a strike in the last decade of the junior doctors led by the British Medical Association, hardly a firebrand trade union, but what does this indicate about the period? Well, it's worth saying, of course, that before Christmas we had the first ever industrial action by the Royal College of Nurses, mm. seen as the go-to union if we didn't want to take any strike action, you know. <laughs> but in the last that was decade, in Northern Ireland. In Northern Ireland, we've seen the Royal College of Midwives. Mm-hmm. Again, and some of these unions actually joining Royal College of Midwives have joined the TUC through the experience of taking action. We had radiographers taking action and other unions as well. And what it's a reflection, I think, is the real character of capitalism that is driving all sections of the workforce, you know, who previously perhaps had a certain privileged existence, but is driving them into the the ranks, if you like, of the working class. I mean, it was interesting, the junior doctors, that actually the methods they used on their strike, you know, almost at the cutting edge, really, of, of trade unions. We, you know, we talk, as Marxists, about combined and uneven development, so you can get the freshest layers drawn into the union movement, but they don't perhaps adopt the tactics of 50 years ago. Mm. They they really are an impulse to the movement. So they sort of skip over what you might schematically view as stages of development and exactly. go straight to what is necessary. And so there's an old number of those examples. I mean, it's interesting. We haven't talked... I mean, I talked about the police earlier. Mm. I talked... The blue flu. Yeah, and what we also had, when the Tory government cut legal aid, we also had an example where we had protests, effectively industrial action, by the legal profession, right up to barristers, <laughs> QCs, etc. Now... That is a reflection of those being drawn into the movement. And, of course, the more fighting the trade union movement appears, the more that we can draw those layers in, rather than layers. exactly rather than have them as a barrier, actually, mm. as a social weight that the Tories and, of course, the capitalists can lean on. Which, traditionally, they would have used. And the fact that you have police, you have barristers, you have doctors, university lecturers, 
moving into struggle against the main party of British capitalism. That is a real reflection of the historic crisis of the system in this country, of politics in this country, and big opportunities for the trade union movement. And we have to take them because, on the other hand, if the Labour and trade union movement doesn't take those opportunities to draw them in, they can still play some of those, such as the police. They can still play, uh, obviously, a reactionary role. We have to face up to that. Mm. But, of course, that's one end, if you like, of society. But, of course, what we've seen, and again, I think this is a reflection of the crisis in society, that we also have some bitter disputes by really the most super-exploited workers in society as well. So, on the other hand, we've also seen the Deliveroo workers, you know, not even the gig economy, if you like, mm. you know, the McDonald's workers. But, of course, certainly a developing theme is workers who've been outsourced from... The public sector. The public sector are taking action in some really bitter disputes as well. And I think another phenomenon which is developing is... You know, when we talked about the early part of the last decade, there was an element for some time of individual one-day strikes. You know, a strike this month, a strike next month, etc. Mm. But it's been apparent to me, certainly anecdotally, but I'm sure this would be backed up by statistics, that workers are taking multiple days of action from the beginning, you know, with all these far more indefinite strikes. And I think this is twofold. One, I think, is because workers realise you can't win just by having isolated days of strike action. That sure. doesn't win. But also, I think, is because, ironically enough, the Tory anti-union laws, which we you know, fight against and have to fight against now with Johnson's new measures being put in the Queen's speech, and, of course, the trade union leaders did next to nothing to stop the Trade Union Act 2016, scandalously. But, of course, one of the consequences of that act is, is that, from now on, Disputes are timed out after six months. So after six months, you have to reballot. Mm. Well, let's be honest. If you're going to be timed out in six months, well, there's a feeling you might as well go for it. Mm. And particularly, again, as a consequence of the Trade Union Act, you know, we don't share the pessimism of the trade union leaders because of the, the you have to get the 50% turnouts that, that stops national action. We still think you can have national strike action. You know, the postal workers have shown that, the lecturers have shown that, etc. But inevitably, the ballots that are easier to win are the localised ones. And we've seen an old spate of localised sectional strike action. And I think they do tend to multiple days of strike action, indefinite days of strike action. And we've seen at the moment many of those things happening. And we've seen actually many of them won just this week. We saw victories for Unite members, mm. long-running dispute in Bromley Libraries, fantastic. Oh, for years that's been going on. Fantastic been covered, action. It, it seems like you know almost all the time that I've been working for the Socialist newspaper, we've been running the story about the Bromley Library. Yeah, months of a definite strike action. We saw victories in Ealing and in Newham again just this week. And of course... That's in the tax offices. Yeah, and I, I have to say, you know, fantastic victory by, again, super-exploited, low-paid workers in St Mary's Hospital that trust in West London mm. where they've actually been taken back in house, outsourced workers being taken back in house, which actually will give huge amount of confidence to workers across all the sectors in the public sector. So that was a that was a big victory for those workers as well. But let's just look at the anti union laws a little bit more. So there's been all sorts of anti union laws passed by Tory governments. 
some of the main ones were Margaret Thatcher's in the 1980s, and these included all sorts of very repressive, restrictive measures against trade union freedoms, but they included, for example, the stricture that you can't, as you used to, go into your workplace and simply put your hand up in a room with everyone else when you're voting about whether you want to go on strike or not. You have to do it through the post so that you're not there collectively in the workplace, so that you're there as an individual and you're subject to all the pressures of the capitalist media rather than being shored up by your workmates and your elected shop steward and so on. So this end of workplace balloting was one of the many measures that Thatcher brought in. Then, particularly after the selling out of the 2011 pension strike, Cameron felt emboldened to bring in further anti-union measures, and this included, like you were mentioning, this threshold, this anti-democratic threshold, so you have to have a minimum 50% turnout in this postal strike ballot in order for the vote to count at all, which, as we've made the point many times, and it's been made many times throughout the trade union movement, if that were the case for MPs or for local councillors, most of them would simply not be elected at all. And in fact, it's even worse in some public sector industries as well. You have to get a kind of double threshold. You have to get something like 40% of the total number of members have to vote. To vote yes. To vote yes, yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, so if you only get a 50% turnout, you have to get an 80% yes vote. So it's a super majority, which is completely undemocratic. So that's a complication. Like you say, there was no serious resistance from the trade union leadership to the new round of anti-trade union laws. And now there are new restrictions being promised by Boris Johnson. These are coming down the line as well. What should we learn from the passage of Cameron's trade union bill in the struggle against new trade union laws and, in fact, ultimately to repeal the old ones as well? Well, it's funny, really, because we are now nearing four decades of Tory anti-union laws. When you go back to Thatcher, in the early 1980s, Thatcher brought in the first tranche of anti-union laws, and whether it's that, some of the major brought in, and then, of course, Cameron and now Johnson. What is the biggest lesson? Well, the obvious lesson is, if you don't fight them sufficiently, then they'll come in, and uh, (laughs) that's the lesson. And, of course, I talked earlier about the massive demonstration in the early 70s against the Industrial Relations Act. Mm. That was Tory anti-union legislation that was defeated. Mm -hmm because the Tory government was defeated during the mass struggle at that time. And that is the lesson we have to learn. And when you look back in 2015-16, then it was all there. The legislation was all sort of out there on the table. There was no hiding place from it. And yet, scandalously, the unions did next to nothing. They didn't organise one national demonstration in London, one Saturday demonstration, no attempt to really have a plan of action against that bill. I can remember when they organised they organised a rally, a midweek rally, and many of us couldn't get into the hall because they didn't even book enough seats. Yeah. It was a, it was an absolute scandalous. And, of course, look at it now. You know, they're sleepwalking into the same situation. The Queen's speech was in December. It's well over a month, a month and a half since that intention was announced. It's targeting... The rail unions, I would argue, particularly the RMT, who've heroically really taken, you know, they're into, what, the third or fourth year now against driver-only operation. So that's the removal of the, the safety guards, role yeah, of guards. Taking the, uh, exactly, that safety-critical role off guards. And, of course, the long-term idea, really, is to attack the strength of the RMT. 
And the silence is deafening. It's absolutely outrageous. Now, before Christmas, the NSN and then... So that's a national shop series now. We were joined with the RMT Union, you know, with them and their protest on the day of the Queen's speech. But really, what we need is, we need a council of war. Have the TUC General Council discussed it? If they have, why don't we know about it? Mm. Why aren't there meetings, rallies, protests going on in every town and city around the country? And I would appeal, actually, particularly to those more militant unions, you know, to the likes of the RMT, to the likes of Unite, to other unions like that. If the TUC's General Council is not going to do it, then I think you have to do it. Mm. I think you have to organise, and we are prepared to assisting you, whether it be the Socialist Party or the National Shop Stewards Network. And of course, we are organising meetings and rallies ourselves. We've got a meeting coming up in a couple of weeks' time in Coventry. We've got a meeting in London coming up. But we ourselves recognise that that is not a substitute for the real united front we need in the unions, and that is the unions themselves coming together. And Mm. I would appeal to those unions, please don't think that if we don't talk about it, it's not going to happen, mm. you know, and, and explaining to workers, why are they doing this? What is the intention, etc.? You know, that the whole purpose of the anti-union laws is to attempt to leave workers defenceless against the attacks of the management. And, and when the anti-union laws were interpreted in an extremely prejudicial way against the Communication Workers Union to put the stymie on their recent national strike ballot, which was overwhelming, and this one unelected judge came up with this extremely obtuse interpretation of one of the anti-trade union laws to put the kibosh on it at this critical period of a general election on high profits over Christmas. The CWU was left on its own by the rest of the trade union movement. Well, I mean, exactly. I mean, when you said earlier about the restrictions of the anti-union laws, then, of course, the CWU, you know, jumped through every hoop, you know, did everything in its power to overcome those limitations and restrictions, had an incredible result. 97% of those who voted, voted for strike action, and 76% of members voted for strike action, obliterated the thresholds. And, of course, the CWU ran a model campaign. They mobilised members. They had an incredible campaign to do it. This is a fight against a management. There's a bullying management that could lead to tens of thousands of jobs going. And as you say, the dispute that strike action would have taken place during the general election, but of course, just as importantly really, would have taken place in the run-up to Christmas, which is the most busiest time of the year, when an elected judge acts to take away all that leverage of the union. And of course, if the CWU lose this dispute, it will have an incredible effect on the lives of postal workers, their working lives, Etc. That's what the anti-union laws mean. And really, we have to sound the charge, really, like we did before Christmas. So this is with the protest outside Parliament yeah, against Queen's speech. Yeah, all trade unionists, all rank-and-file trade unionists, we need to really build the pressure in those individual unions for the campaign and the fight that we need. And, of course, the potential is there. There is a lot of confusion about Johnson. Mm-hmm. He's a maverick. He's a populist. He will... Give with one and take with another. You know, he will try and give an impression that he is somehow for workers. But of course, he is a bundle of contradictions. And in the end, ultimately, he will serve the interests of the rich and the powerful, of the bosses, etc. We've seen that when he won the election, all promises to everyone that he's going to try and repay 
those who voted for him in the red belt, if you like, of those working class yeah, the former areas. Red and yet now we have him telling ministers that they've got to come up with 5% savings, more cuts on top of cuts, mm-hmm. and of course this anti-union legislation. How can he be pro-worker when he has legislation in his back pocket directly against the trade unions that represent six and a half million workers in his country? So that has to be exposed, and that can be exposed. Those contradictions can be exposed in workers' minds, but particularly if the trade unions lead the charge on this. Okay. And that means mobilising, organising and taking on the Tories. Now, you've mentioned some of the new organisation of previously largely unorganised workers, actually, in the gig economy, in outsourced workers, in low-paid areas like migrant cleaners in particular, and some of these very dynamic, newer unions like the Independent Workers of Great Britain, like the United Voices of the World, have achieved a number of quite impressive victories with very militant action there. And some people will be saying, well, look, this is really important. And of course, we'd agree with that, organising these people. This is the way of the future. Look at the bureaucracy at the top of some of the big unions. Look at the dreadful role which the Trade Union Congress, the TUC, has played, not just recently, but actually throughout most of its history, in selling out struggles. Isn't this the way forward, rather than working within some of the traditional unions? I think that's a fair point. I mean, we have a very good relationship with those unions, the IWGB, the UVW and others. I've been on down the UVW picket line down in St George's last week. I'll be there next week. I'll appeal to everyone, by the way, get down to that picket line because the police have been trying to intimidate the workers. It's outrageous, really. Mm. So, of course, yes, we have a very, very friendly, positive approach to those unions and all power to their elbow. But, of course, what we mustn't forget is, is that the main task still is to transform those mass unions into fighting organisations. So the two are not mutually exclusive. You sure. know, We can support those unions in the action that they take, absolutely. But there's no panacea here. When you talk to those unions, they want to be bigger unions. Of course. So they certainly haven't got an attitude that small is beautiful. You know, <laughs> uh, And really, the best way to support those unions, actually, but certainly to support their members is to have fighting mass unions, organisations working class. So you're right, you know, these are very important developments. Let's take the overwhelming positives, is that it shows the workers will fight if they're given a lead. Mm -hmm. But of course, you have had bigger unions organising amongst that sector of workers and won victories. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have criticisms of the unions and leadership. But they have won. So, the instance, that's the biggest union now in Britain, exactly which is in the public sector, mainly local government and the NHS. Exactly, but they have had victories with outsourced workers. They have had victories in stopping workers being outsourced mm. and taken into wholly owned subsidiaries, which again is a device for outsourcing, privatisation in the NHS, uh, etc. Similarly, with Unite. Similarly, with PCS. Mm-hmm. You know, main established unions defending those super exploited workers and. I know PCS, for instance, formed a very close relationship with UVW. Mm-hmm. So PCS won a dispute in Bays for outsourced workers. So that's a government department? Yeah, place. business department. It's in Westminster. Mm-hmm. So they had a very close relationship supporting each other's picket lines. PCS members in Bays with UVW members in the Ministry of Justice. Mm-hmm. And of course, we've had the Bakers Union heroically organised strikes amongst McDonald's workers. Yeah. So... Like I say, 
those things are not mutually exclusive. It's a very important development, but I still believe the main task facing militant trade unionists is the fight to transform the mass unions into fighting organisations. And speaking of transforming those mass unions into fighting organisations, let's just look at the year ahead then. You've mentioned that Johnson is a bundle of contradictions. Some people would say, look, there was his onslaught in 2010. Surely an onslaught like that is a sort of thing which would provoke anger from workers and it's that kind of massive attempt to immiserate, to make their conditions worse. That should provoke a big fight back. Of course, we see that that's not always the case, but Johnson's promising more misery, but he's also promising infrastructure investment, which could bring a certain number of jobs, particularly in construction, if it comes through, and that's not guaranteed, but we have seen in the past decade, we haven't commented on it very much, there have been very important disputes in construction as well, especially on these big infrastructure projects like Crossrail, you had the electricians dispute against the so-called Besner contract, all of this going on in the private sector. So what are the prospects then for trade union struggle in 2020, in the year ahead, because you've got this national strike of the UCU, the ballot of the CWU, they're balloting again, having been pushed back by the judge. So there's potential two national strikes there. There's all this anger at a small local level in all sorts of different workplaces. The NHS is bursting at the seams with anger and exhaustion. What's going to happen here? There's going to be more attacks. There's possibly going to be more opportunities for jobs and so on opening up. What does this mean for struggle? Well, As we've said in this podcast, the point we would make anyway is that the period of the 2010s was a period of struggle. There was an opportunity lost, but what is certain is workers were prepared to fight and did fight. And the point you make, I think, is a good point. You know, we don't see an automatic connection that I feel like, you know, the workers need to be trampled into the ground before they fight. I mean, sometimes... Yeah, sometimes when you have a deep recession then workers can feel a bit powerless, you know, well, what can we do, you know, if the old plant is closing or etc. if loads of jobs are going, what can we do? Whereas sometimes, if workers feel that their situation is stabilised, there is not an immediate threat to their job, then of course you can also have struggles, and, and by the way, we've seen actually, many of the disputes we've seen over the last couple of years have been on pay, because workers, some workers at least, in some sectors, feel in that, the immediate threat to their job is not there in the mm-hmm. same way. And therefore, we want our share. If you like, we've tightened our belts for years. Now we want our share back. And we can see that. I take your point, actually. See, the thing is with Johnson, Johnson might come up with some construction projects. They say, we'll see. But he could come up with them. But of course, they're shot through with neoliberalism. Mm. So therefore, even if they employed 5,000 workers tomorrow, then... On what terms are they going to do that? Is he going to start employing everyone on direct labour? Presumably, it'll be the same methods of the race to the bottom, agency labour, etc. And of course, it's inevitable. When workers are employed, inevitably, it gives them a certain strength. You know, we're in work. There's a few of us. Let's fight back. Of course, we should say that there is a shadow behind all this. Okay. And that is the shadow of the economy. Mm. It's getting on for 12, 13 years since the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. And the economy really has been very stagnant since then. It's hardly been a boom period for workers, (laughs) as we know that. But nevertheless, the economy's got huge weaknesses as well. It's perilous. And not uh, just in Britain, but around the world. Exactly. So that shadow is out there. 
as well. And of course, while it's not an automatic connection between those jolts and struggle, then clearly those instances, those also show to workers in a very concrete fashion, unfortunately, this system can't provide for them. This system is a system of crisis. And the other side is, is that, I mean, I think this is an important point that actually in a period of crisis like this, for trade unionists to have a socialist consciousness, to have a socialist perspective, is a huge advantage and a huge necessity, actually, because when you're fighting tooth and nail against the employers, the idea that you don't limit yourself to what this system can give you, what capitalism can give you, I think is very important and a necessity. So, for instance, that was very important in the battle against austerity. This idea that we'll make all the sacrifices and we'll be okay. Well, what's the lesson of the last decade? <laughs> Workers made huge sacrifices. You know, in many cases, unwillingly, yeah. let down by their leaders, but they made huge sacrifices. Where was the benefit? Yeah. What advantage did they accrue? But of course, the other thing as well is, is that in the private sector, then it's important to learn the lesson that sometimes the most militant, all-consuming struggle is necessary as well to maintain those units of industry that are still left. And what I mean by that is, is that we've seen in the last year or so that workers in Honda in Swindon, workers in Ford in Bridgend, facing closure this year, next year. Those two plants alone, we're talking probably about 5,000 plus jobs mm. directly, plus many, many more in that way. And you really, you feel that going forward, the lesson that needs to be learned there is of occupation, mm-hmm. of fighting to take those industries into public ownership through a struggle. So, so occupation is an important tactic because it prevents, for example, asset strippers coming and taking exactly. out the equipment so you can defend the facilities and therefore defend the jobs. And in the early 1970s, there were examples where even a Tory government was forced, in Rolls-Royce, in the upper Clyde shipbuilders, the government was forced by struggle, certainly in UCS in Glasgow, the employers to intervene. And, that, and they're nationalising at the moment, aren't they? This Tory government is nationalising failing railway networks. Yeah, exactly. Of course, they're... We need to make the point, their intention, just like they was done with the banks, to save them and then give them away again. At a knockdown price. But nevertheless, those lessons have to be learned as well. You know, we have to fight for that, that idea that that most militant action is necessary. In effect, what I'm saying is, is if, if workers, to maintain a decent standard of living, actually it's the most militant forms of action, ultimately, that is necessary. But of course... We don't stop there. Mm. Actually, more and more, you know, when we engage in these day-to-day battles, is how we link those battles to the best workers, to an understanding that actually capitalism can't provide for them. And uh, the workers can run things for themselves. Exactly. They need to be engaged in a fight for socialism as well. So it's not pie in the sky. It's rooted in the reality they face. Mm-hmm. But then linking that to what type of society that we need as well which I believe will be more and more posed to them point blank through the crisis in society. And if you want to see that kind of militant struggle in your trade union and you like what we're saying, you should join the Socialist Party. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers' International. This week we heard from Rob Williams speaking to James Ivans and I'm Helen Patterson. If you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party is fighting for, we need you. 
Join our campaign to build a truly effective working class fighting force in the trade union and labour movement. Join the Socialist Party now. Send us your details at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for a Workers International by visiting socialistworld.net. Help us spread the word by giving us a five-star review and subscribing so you don't miss out. Don't forget to recommend us to your co-workers and friends. We want you to send us recordings from picket lines and campaigns and reports of your activity. And we want your questions, comments and ideas for future episodes. Email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk Socialism has no wealthy backers. We survive thanks to the financial support of ordinary working class and young people. And we're proud of the political independence that gives us. If you like what you hear, help us take the fight to big business. You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. Till next time, solidarity.